Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 11 in our series of 2022, and today's date is Friday, April the 15th. First, I'll be talking to Tom Trenor, the Chief Marketing Officer for Treasure Data, the California-based enterprise customer data platform that powers the entire business to shape customer centricity in the age of the digital customer. And I'll be talking to KPMG economist Sarah Hunter about the state of Australia's economy, inflation and impending interest rate rises. But now let's talk to Tom Trenor. Tom, tell us about uh, CDP. What exactly is it? So customer data platform is one database that centralizes the customer data that companies have spread amongst a, a variety of different data silos within their organizations. They have a lot of legacy databases. Maybe they have a customer loyalty program. They might have their POS systems, point of sale systems, have one set of customer data, their CRM systems, all their marketing automation tools and other marketing tools. So it aggregates that customer data into one place and allows you to, uh, to unify those profiles so that you really have a true understanding of who your customers are and, uh, and what, what would they like from you. Okay. So what makes it so different from everything else? Uh, it's different from everything else because a lot of tools are focused on what's the function that they serve. So point of sale is to, you know, kind of do a sale and then, and then basically houses the customer data related to that sale. Another tool, uh, for example, CRM is around controlling a sales process. So the data in there is what's required to handle that sales process, but it's not really organized in a way that can be used and, and really analyzed well for the, the actual, the customers. It's more about that, that, that sales and that company. So all these tools are really developed around how they manage the data and the data they use. And so there's no one tool that cuts across all those tools and allows you to aggregate into one place and then makes that data useful back into those tools. So what you're saying is all the other data platforms, what they do is that they're all basically transactional. Yeah. Whereas CDP yeah. takes everything and puts it, aggregates it so that you can actually use it holistically. Is that right? Yeah, and it, it, what it makes the other aspects of the stack better. So it actually improves the whole stack by giving more intelligence to each each of those tools as well, uh, or many of those tools. So, I mean, what role does it play in uh, personalizing customer experience and predicting customer behavior? 
Yeah, so there might be some personalization tools that handle like one channel or focused on things like email or web, which is, again, it's kind of very transactional. But this allows you to, since you're aggregating data across the whole experience, and I can include sales and support and other functions in there that are customer facing, you actually get that omni-channel view of the customer, as opposed to a lot of these tools are looking at a view of a customer within, within a particular silo. So to be able to, to do omni-channel personalization, having the advantage of that data that sees the customer across different experiences, whether it's in-store, whether it's on the web, whether it's in the support, you know, talking to support, then you can personalize the message and make recommendations, whether it's on a website, whether it's within that support call, whether it's within an email campaign. So basically it personalizes it so that you have it for each individual customer. Is that right? That's right. You can, you can have the information to personalize at the customer level or at the segment level or whatever level, you know, and there's, there, there, you can utilize AI to make predictions based on customers that are very similar to the one uh, that you're talking about in terms of this is a good recommendation based on what other customers in that same situation have bought. You know, that's, this is something that would be useful for them. I would imagine artificial intelligence would be absolutely critical for this, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Yes. And, and once you have enough data, the problem with AI is if you have small sets of data, it's, you, you really can't get any insights. So the, the larger the data set you have, the more you have to work with and the more results you'll have. That's, that's quite extraordinary. Uh, but there would be data mistakes that you could make, couldn't you, that would inhibit your growth? There's data mistakes that, that you can make at all levels and, and all, all, all phases of maturity in terms of customer data management. But you can imagine that a company that has really no centralized management of their customer data, and it sits in a lot of silos, they can't manage customer data well in that environment. So what we're doing is helping companies get more a handle on that data, and then then you can actually work on the, the kind of privacy and security and compliance as well, because then you can really, you know, for example, you can provide marketing teams compliant lists for their region centrally versus having each marketing team in a, in a given country figured out for themselves. So that could actually better coordinate all your marketing yeah. teams across your company. Could yeah, we have a lot of our customers telling us that this is like essential for their risk reduction, risk reduction in terms of their, their compliance risk. I would imagine this would be uh, quite important for large companies, large corporations, wouldn't it? And the yes. larger the corporation, the more important it is. Yes. Would that be right? Uh, yes, it's important. I mean, it's actually important at all levels. It's 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 harder to manage with large companies because there's so many variables. There's different different divisions, different silos and groups within those divisions. There's there's a lot of countries. So yeah, it, it, the the problem just gets magnified at the larger scale. And of course, there's more risk because you have you know uh, in all those different crossing those borders, you have a lot of different compliance rules that you have to manage. Well, how did IBM, AB InBev, which is the parent company of um, Anheuser-Busch and Subaru, use CDPs to increase their customer centricity? Yeah, so AB InBev is the largest beer company globally, and they have over 500 brands. And we're helping them in over 40 countries centrally manage that data uh, so that they can have uh, focus on security and compliance and also insights as well as activation, actually engaging their customers in those various regions. So yeah, we're, that's, that's how we're helping them. It's, it's a, it's a great partnership. And Subaru? Uh, Subaru is also uh, one of our customers and, you know, they, they started out small using it for campaigns and, and personalization. And then they've, they've increased it to 
you know, they literally use it with all their agencies. They use it on the showroom floor to be able to predict, you know, which customers are more, or more likely to purchase and which ones aren't. And they've had great success with that. That's quite extraordinary. And these, these are big global companies, of course. That's right. How did Treasure Data change its own business model? And, and what are the lessons that uh, CDP offers? Uh, you know, we, we've gone through the evolution of, of being more and more focused on our customers as well and, 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 and understanding the customer analytics. And one thing that we're doing is considering that customer data is not only important for marketing, because a lot of marketing teams are the first ones to buy a CDP or MarTech teams. And what we're looking to do is, is utilize the customer data in sales and support as well and across other other divisions in in the company and you know when we when we work with the data teams that that manage a lot of these uh, organizations they 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 find a tremendous value and other teams uh, even sometimes the product teams utilize the, the data and actually can do activations within uh, within uh, their product so there's there's a lot of options for how how you you know make sure you uh, getting it from all the different systems, but also how you utilize the customer data across the enterprise. Well, I mean that would uh, that would raise a question of who does it act, who actually controls it in the company? I mean, does it go to the chief marketing officer? Does it go? To, is it is there, is there a position like a chief data officer, a chief technical officer? Who actually handles this? Yeah, it depends by 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 company. So as I was mentioning, a lot of times it starts with marketing or martech, but certain companies are centralizing, you know, they're, they're the, the person who manages the, the customer data. Uh, so chief data officer or someone who sits, sits in their team or sometimes sits in IT that, yeah, con- kind of controls how data is managed within company and centralized. So there are companies going to the centralized model where they really control it and then they have the, the charter to, you know, centralize that data and then work with the teams and how, how they use the data in, a, in appropriate ways. Now, the $64 question for you, and uh, this is quite important, is uh, how much educating do you have to do at companies to use this? Because this is all very new and quite radical. I'd say there's a couple levels. So one is educating the market. So it's a newer technology and, and some executives and others are not familiar with it. So we're, we're basically educating the market about it and, and talking about the success stories. And then internally, it starts out with the centralization of the data and the unification of the profiles. You know, people sometimes for the first time understand exactly how many customers they have. There's been cases where they just, it, all these different systems tell them different information about how many customers they have. So they unify the data, they know how many customers they have, and they actually have insights about those, those customers and a lot better understanding of the, the real customer journey, as well as the real personas that they're selling to. So that in and of itself is very educational for them. It actually happens quite quickly. We're talking in months, not years. And then they start to do use cases. So, you know, three use cases to, to start maybe, and then several more use cases. And so they, they don't, it's not big bang where there's, you know, suddenly everything's different. They, they start to roll out use cases based on a better understanding of the customer and specific goals that they have with that, with that data. Well, Tom, that's all quite fascinating. And uh, it's, it's amazing how the world is changing. And thank you very much for your time. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Leon. Great to be here. And now let's talk to KPMG economist, Sarah Hunter. Well, Sarah, uh, the world has changed quite dramatically since we last spoke. We've got inflation rising everywhere, including Australia. And uh, we've got the RBA is now looking at raising interest rates and the banks are saying 
four times this year and uh you know so and and into next year and you've got the russia ukraine war going on which is causing all sorts of problems uh for the global economy with supply shortages uh fuel shortages food shortages what's your assessment of all of this i'm i'm my i just don't know how to follow this there is certainly an awful lot going on and and you're right i think it was only a couple of months ago when we last spoke and and that was before uh russia ukraine conflict kicked off but um but even uh, that aside uh, absolutely um things seem to be still going very very strong and things coming through in terms of inflation and that domestic economy being so strong better than uh, certainly the rba were expecting um i think for myself um that strength is not perhaps 100% surprising I, I saw some of it in the data back then and i can still see it in the data now but yeah it does look as though we are looking at rate rises sort of imminently in the next couple of months whereas i think at the start of the year the rba were uh, fellow was suggesting um it would be late this year and it might not be this year at all he was saying it was plausible but not definite now i think he he may well change his language again so a lot going on for sure at the moment right okay okay so what's your assessment with the interest rate rises where's that going to happen yeah, well, I think what was really interesting, we had the, the meeting um, just earlier this week, the April meeting, and for me, the language in there, um, it reiterated what they'd already said, but I think it, it probably gave us a bit more clarity around timing. They definitely see the economy as operating I'd say pretty close to full employment, you know, at capacity. This thing we can't really measure, we can only measure it indirectly through uh, those wage pressures coming through, through broader price pressures. Uh, so it's hard to know when we get there, um, certainly in real time. But, you know, a strong signal that we're, if we're not there yet, we are very, very close. And so they were signaling that really key was what we get in the next inflation print, which comes out uh, in just a few weeks' time. And what we get in the next wages print, which comes out middle of May, more or less. So for myself, I think the next uh, headline CPI print certainly will be very positive, very strong number. Uh, we're going to be edging up again from where we were, which is three and a half percent last time. So that's going to be approaching four percent. I think more importantly, because so much of that will be due to fuel price moves, um, other commodity moves that are coming in from overseas, a bit of the food price inflation that you mentioned too. And that's really interesting. It's not just a direct supply shock that's coming out of Ukraine and Russia, actually, the immediate supply shock is not so significant because, of course, it's winter or was winter in Europe. They're not uh, harvesting at the moment, but it's more the indirect spillovers we've seen coming through fertilizer prices, through fuel prices. All of these affect the agriculture supply chain. So getting the food from the farm to the plate, as it were. So that will start to come through, too, in that headline rate. And the RBA will look through that. They can't do an awful lot about those kind of shocks. Uh, it doesn't make sense for them to be tightening and raising interest rates if it's only uh, that sort of supply shock that we're seeing that's coming from overseas. But I think more importantly is what's happening to core inflation. That's the measure of those domestic pressures. I think we will see a step up then. Uh, we're seeing price rises coming through across the board, all sorts of businesses across all parts of the economy, all sectors announcing that they're having to move. And so that's what we're going to start seeing. So for me, the, the headline inflation print, the next one, uh, I think will be another step up. The wages print is probably more interesting. And if they don't, if they, if we, the thing that might give them pause um, on a June or a July rate rise is if we don't see a step up there. And this is, it is hard 
uh, to sort of unpack and to really see what's going on. We, we can see in the high frequency data and we've seen it coming through in um, the previous prints that private sector um, in wage inflation for those that are on individual agreements. So the people who you, know, you negotiate one-on-one -on, -one on your salary, those people are definitely seeing their wages start to move. They can change their job and go for higher pay. They can negotiate you know, today straight away to get a, a bump. And if they're in demand, then they're obviously in a good position to do that. Uh, the group, though, that it's more challenging for where it is slower coming through are those where their pay is tied to a collective agreement or the, uh, the award wage or some combination of those. There, it does take longer to come through. And, uh, and what has happened to that group and the speed of adjustment there, I think, is something that the RBA are going to be paying close attention to. Um, having said all of that, though, it is the case that uh, there are other you know, broader measures of labour costs that you can look at through the economy. Those are showing signs of strength as well. So I think unless we get a really disappointing print in that wages data in May, I do think we're looking at cash rate rises. You know, June certainly on the cards. July uh, is definitely, if it's not June, July is definitely possible. August is probably um, towards the back end of when I think they'll go. And if they've not gone by August, I think something really dramatic has changed the environment completely. Okay, so do you see these rate rises continuing into next year? Um, I think, uh, yes, I think, look, we if we're thinking about um, does the economy need stimulus um, to keep driving it or should we be looking at normalising uh, the monetary policy settings? We, we should be looking at normalizing. And so one rate rise, if it takes us to say that 25 basis points or 0.25%, that's really quite a small change. That's not going to dampen things that much. Um, I do think we're, we're looking at multiple rate rises through this year and then into 2023. Um, in terms of uh, sort of maybe comparing the trajectory or the possible trajectory for the, uh, the cash rate here in Australia to say the US where the Fed are signaling, they think it's a, an awful lot of rate rises, some, you know, 0.5 percentage point increases multiple times possibly this year. I think there um, there's a, a need for them to correct more quickly. Their economy is running much uh, hotter than ours is relative to capacity. I think you know what's really caught them out at the Fed is the fact that the labor force hasn't recovered in the US the way it has here and they're still missing you know, over one percent of those people who were working pre-COVID are still not working. Uh, we don't have the same challenge. So I, I don't think it's as fast a pace of, of rate rise if I look at it from that perspective. And the other thing to keep in mind as well, especially going through 23 um, and into maybe even into 24, there are going to be some headwinds appearing on the horizon for the economy. That cost of living burden for households is going to start to bite. The residential construction cycle is probably hitting a peak around now. And as we get through into next year, all those gluts of home builder projects will be finished. And what's coming behind in terms of the pipeline is, is smaller, understandably. That was always going to be a cycle. Um, and, uh, and we're also you know, perhaps seeing some of those business investment trends in terms of their increment to growth are going to be much slower. So businesses have really taken advantage of the, uh, the instant asset tax write-off. Uh, threshold being lifted but that will fade too so there's some you know some things that are going to slow the economy naturally and that's another reason why I don't think the RBA will have to be quite as aggressive as say the Fed but it is mostly a story around capacity and um, the fact that we're closer to being able to match the demand in the economy here with Mother's Day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. 
Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Supply in the US in particular, they're really struggling with that right now. Well, one of the interesting things I found in the last profit reporting season was that the, that while the numbers were good, a lot of companies were reporting steeper than expected costs, and that was impacting mm. on their costs, on their profits. Mm. And mm. I suspect we're going to see more of that happening, mm. and that will affect business and the economy. Mm, absolutely. I mean, and that's the that's going to be the trigger for those inflationary pressures. I don't think we'll be stopping talking about inflation anytime soon. I think probably more interestingly, um, you know, the resolution or, or whatever the resolution of the Russia-Ukraine situation looks like, and we clearly don't know, and, and it's not appropriate to speculate at all. But I think um, whatever happens in that commodity space, we're going to be talking about cost pressures more broadly, inflationary a lift more broadly than that because it's coming through across all facets of business costs it's not just a commodities fuel price story and that's that sort of pressure in terms of price lifts and the dampening that effect that will have on both households and potentially businesses in terms of their investment spending as well as we move through the rest of this year at the moment um my uh, from reading uh, those sort of papers and from talking to, to business leaders and things there's a question of how much do I lift my prices when do I lift my prices I think in six months time we won't be asking the uh, we'll be asking those questions but in the context of they've already lifted their prices do they need to adjust further or not so there's, there's more inflation to come well that's an interesting question because I mean in the US inflation what's about seven percent mm. and uh, mm. but here it's about three and a half but uh, mm. you're saying it'll be about four. But uh, could we look, be looking at higher? I notice unions are putting out claims for pay claims now for five percent. Mm. And so, I, so you know, can we see inflation rising five, six, seven percent here? Uh, it's nothing is ever impossible. Uh, so I wouldn't take anything off the table. I, I would say um, certainly lifting from where it is now. So you said, said four. I think actually by the time we get to the middle of this year, we'll be comfortably above 4%. So when we get the June quarter data, which will be in July, uh, I think we'll get a print that is comfortably above 4% on headline inflation. In terms of it moving significantly beyond that, uh, it's an interesting one, actually. The headline inflation trends just on what we call economists tend to call base effects. So just looking at where some prices were a year before, actually some of those base effects are going to start to ease as we get into the second half of this year. Uh, so fuel prices, for instance, notwithstanding what they've done just recently, they have stepped up a lot and they're running you know, 30, 40% above where they were a year ago. Actually, oil prices, global oil prices started to lift in the back half of last year. So as we get into the back half of this year, some of the recent increase is going to be sort of neutralized, if you like, by that higher base level for the price. And it's not just oil prices, that's actually commodity prices across the board, food prices as well, actually. So, so some of the, the supports for headline inflation are mathematically going to drop out. 
uh, and that will ease our, our headline rate. But I think more, much more importantly for the RBA, much more pertinently uh, for local businesses is what's happening to that core domestic price pressure. That I don't think we're going to see easing as quickly. I think that there's further strength to come through in that as we move through this year. And, and it's only really as uh, we start to you know, get that tightening of policy and some of those other headwinds coming in that will dampen down domestic activity that we're going to start to see some easing there. So it's going to be a funny thing with uh, inflation. We could see some stuff coming off. And, and, but other stuff coming through and uh, where we land uh, overall, that's the things we're going to have to watch out for. Right, okay. But uh, you can see this happening continuing into next year. I, I certainly don't think we're looking at inflation um, falling back below, uh, significantly below 3% this year. Um, and as we go into next year, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty. There really is. We, we don't know. But um, I, I would say, yes, next year is when we, we should start to see some of these pressures ease significantly. And so inflation coming you know, comfortably below that 3% mark, for me, that's uh, likely to be a 2023 outcome rather than a 2022 outcome. Well, that'll be fascinating to watch, Sarah. It's uh, <laughs> certainly given us food for thought, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, spurred by Russia's war on Ukraine and continuing economic fallout from the pandemic, US inflation rose in March by the most since late 1981, reinforcing pressure on the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates more aggressively. The main sources of pain during the month were gasoline and food. Though some economic experts contend the current inflation reading of 8.5% is likely at its peak, the path down the mountain can't come soon enough for many consumers. Gasoline costs drove half of the monthly increase, while food was also a sizable contributor, as Americans paid more for vegetables, meats and dairy products. While the Fed has opened the door for a half percentage point increase in interest rates, inflation isn't likely to recede to the central bank's 2% goal anytime soon, especially given the war, COVID-19 lockdowns in China and greater demand for services like travel. At the same time, risks that inflation will tip the economy into recession are building. A growing chorus of economists predict that activity will contract either because consumer spending declines in response to higher prices, or the Fed will overcorrect in, an, in its effort to catch up. However, the majority still expects the economy to grow. And Elon Musk has confirmed that he will not join Twitter's board, although he said he might engage in discussions with directors without limitation, opening the door to future involvement in the company's strategy. The Tesla chief executive, who became the social media company's largest shareholder after acquiring a 9.2% stake, said in an amended regulatory filing on Monday that he might discuss the business, mergers, capital structure and governance with its board or management team in the future. The filing also stipulated that Musk could express his views on Twitter's products and services to the board, management or the public through social media or other channels. And the Reserve Bank of Australia's cash rate is tipped to hit as high as 1.5% by the middle of next year as the nation's central bank moves to put a cap on soaring inflation. AMP capital economist Diana Mussina has outlined the investment manager's new forecast for Australia's interest rates, predicting the official cash rate target to hit 1% by the end of 2022, before lifting to 1.5% in mid-2023. Australia's interest rates are hovering at the record low of 0.1%. And house rents jumped by as much as 21% in some capital cities during the past 12 months, with sharp rises expected in the months ahead, as the number of available rental homes falls to critical levels, data from SQM research shows. Across the combined capitals, rents for houses climbed by nearly 15% during the year, while unit rents rose by 11%. The growing number of tenants living on their own, combined with the return of international students, had fuelled strong rental demand at a time when supply is diminishing rapidly. 
and consumer confidence gained 1.3% last week in response to falling petrol prices, according to an ANZ Roy Morgan survey. Weekly inflation expectations remain steady at 5.8%, despite a significant drop in petrol prices. Its four-week moving average was also unchanged at 6%. And petrol plummeted 19.1 cents a litre on average last week as a 50% cut to the fuel excise flowed through to the pump prices, slashing about $50 a month from the average family's fuel bill. And a survey from National Australia Bank showed its index of business conditions doubled to 18 in March, while confidence added 3 points to 16. The survey's measure of sales jumped 13 points to 24, while profitability rose 8 points to 13. The employment index added 4 points to 12, suggesting the jobless rate will soon drop under 4% for the first time since the early 1970s. And Clive Palmer's United Australia Party has spent nearly $3.5 million on advertising in April as it continues to outpace its political rivals. Figures obtained from Nielsen Ad Intel, which tracks ad spending across metro, television, print, radio and digital, show the party has spent $3.49 million this month. The Labor Party has spent $472,247, the Liberal Party has paid just $103,265 and the Greens bought $42,991 in ads. Television advertising urging viewers to back the UAP has been running in most capital cities for months, supported by ads across national and metro newspapers including The Australian, The Age and The Sydney Morning Herald. The party has also been prolific on YouTube and other websites. The Nielsen ad intel figures do not capture advertising on outdoor billboards, with the UAP's spending on that content not captured in the $3.49 million figure. And Australians are Googling inflation. On March 30, the day after the budget, stories mentioning cost of living spent a whopping 693 hours on one of the top 10 slots of major Australian news websites, up from five hours on March 5th. Journalists are writing about it, and voters are clicking on it. In March, Google searches for the word inflation had their best month since May 2008, when Australia was in the midst of its last major inflation outbreak. Redbridge pollster Cosmos Samara said the recent surge in petrol prices was a straw that broke the camel's back for many voters. But it isn't just petrol that has become more expensive. Since Prime Minister Scott Morrison came to office in August 2018, wages have not kept pace with inflation. Workers' pay packets have increased 6.6%, while the price of what households buy has climbed 7%, meaning purchasing power has gone backwards. The cost of childcare, a topic front of mind for many voters, has jumped 19% since Morrison took office three and a half years ago. Supermarket staples have also become more expensive. Beef prices have climbed 29%, while the prices of lamb, vegetables, cereal, juice, pork and cheese have also increased faster than wages over this period. And with a six-week election campaign locked in, key economic indicators between now and polling day could be either a helping hand or a stinging blow to each of major parties' electoral chances. Wage results due three days before the May 21 poll could gift Labor leader Anthony Albanese a boost, but the Labor force report the following day could equally deliver Prime Minister Scott Morrison a 48-year milestone. Mr Albanese has used falling real wages, which occur when CPI inflation rises faster than wages, to drive home his pitch that the economy is not working for most Australians. In the year ended last June 30, CPI inflation rose 3.8% compared with wage growth of 1.8%. This financial year, CPI inflation is expected to be 4.25%, with wages lagging at 2.75%. The March quarter inflation report will be released on April 27, and is expected to show annual CPI as high as 4% to 5%, highlighting the mounting cost of living pressure on households. Wages data for the same period will be released on May the 18th. Economists expect it to show a pickup in wages, but even if growth nudges to 2.5%, Labor's message will be clear. A 2.75% in pay rise would add $4,400 to pre-tax pay, but assuming they spend what they earn, inflation of 4.25% would add $6,800 to cost of living, leaving them $2,400 worse off. 
The rising cost of living, including record fuel prices in March, was a key reason for the $8.6 billion cost of living cash splash in the federal budget. But while Labor will focus on wages and inflation, Mr Morrison will hope two sets of employment data due between now and Election Day, April the 14th and May 19, deliver him the lowest jobless rate since 1974. Unemployment fell to 4% in February from the previous months of 4.2%, 5.9% a year earlier, and 7.4% the height of the COVID-19 crisis. The Reserve Bank of Australia board meeting on May the 3rd will also be a date to watch. While most economists expect the central bank to hold the record low 0.1% cash rate until June, they're not ruling out a May increase. And an overwhelming majority of us of leading Australian economists say climate change and environmental policy are the most important issues for the upcoming federal election. As party leaders scramble to set the tone for the next six weeks of election campaigning, the economists polled have pointed to several issues often neglected by major political parties that they say should be the focus of election policy platforms. A group of around 50 Australian economists was surveyed by the Conversation and the Economic Society of Australia, with 74% of those polls saying climate change should be the most important election issue. The group ranked housing affordability, healthcare and tax reform as the three most important issues after climate and the environment. While there's already been a significant focus from party leaders and much of the media on the issue of taxes, none of the 50-so economists surveyed said that the need to lower taxes was the most important election issue. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison has warned voters of the risks posed by the Labor government, but economists at UBS are more sanguine, saying they see no material change to the economic or share market outlook, regardless of the winner. But in the same breath, the investment bank has issued a stark warning on the threat of rising interest rates, predicting a housing market crash and a recession if the Reserve Bank moves too aggressively. With the federal election now locked in for May the 21st, both Labor and the Coalition will spend the coming weeks courting voters. Mr Morrison kicked this off on Sunday as he announced the election date. UBS said one key economic difference from a potential Labor victory would be new policies aimed to increase the minimum wage or change the EBA wage system. Meanwhile, the outlook for the share market was positive, they said, with Australian equities posting strong returns in the three months before and six months after over the 18 federal elections since 1974. The equities market in the past has been unfazed by a change of government, while the consumer discretionary sector has outperformed during these times, UBS said. And the 2022 federal election advertising war will be fought on television, but the rise of audiences watching free-to-air through broadcast video on demand or BVOD apps like 7 Plus or Set 9 Now will help political messages be more targeted at specific audiences than during the 2019 election. As the Prime Minister has officially called the federal election, legislation now kicks in allowing more political ads on commercial free-to-air television, with free-to-air TV, radio and outdoor billboards to be used to communicate the party's big messaging, such as broad policy ads and easy-to-digest grabs like Albanese's pledge to be a leader who shows up, who takes responsibility and who works with the people, and Scott Morrison's That's Why I Love Australia. TV will be the medium wherein they can establish the overarching core headline message that they want all people to believe. Social environments will be where they become more specific and persuasive with their message, including to try to convert the undecided to a more nuanced way. Media agency Dentsu's Melanie McDonald, who works with clients to plan and buy advertising space, expects to see an increase on digital and social platforms for the 2019 elections, as migration to connected TV viewing has grown significantly in the past three years. She expects digital to be the key advertising battlefield in the 2022 election. Chris Walton, Managing Director of Independent Media Agency None Media, said campaigns targeting particular demographics or potentially even certain seats will leverage BVOD and other digital media. And buy now, pay later giant Afterpay has revealed significant losses in the first six months of the financial year, unaudited financial accounts released by UBS parent Block show. 
Afterpay's deteriorating results have reignited debate about the profitability of its buy now, pay later business model amid a surge in write offs and late fees that dragged its losses to $345 million. Fintech giant Block, formerly Square, acquired Afterpay for $39 billion last year. It released details of Afterpay's earnings to December 31st in New York on Monday night, Australian time, revealing that its cost had blown out by 65% and its bad debts were up 70%. Afterpay's income jumped from $374.2 million to $560.8 million in the six months of December 31st, but a surge in finance costs and operating expenses saw the net loss rise from $79.2 million to $345.5 million. The blowout saw losses after tax lift by 336% as expenses and marketing costs ballooned as it neared the conclusion of the $39 billion acquisition by Block. Afterpay's results showed its cost of sales swelled, hitting $181.6 million, up from $110.34 million the year prior. And Spotless has been fined $17,500 for refusing to pay redundancy to three long-serving staff following a landmark judgment against its group redundancy policy. The Federal Court issued the penalty on Friday after criticising Spotless for its treatment of its Perth International Airport staff, including an accountant with more than 30 years' service, and for adopting an incorrect policy position without any apparent legal consideration that would have netted it considerable financial gain. Investors targeting companies with greater gender diversity in senior management stand to make 4% higher returns, largely from the benefits of more diverse thought, a 10-year global study of 2,500 businesses has found. The study by investment firm Real Index also found that more diverse senior management teams could generate cumulative return on equity over five years that was nearly 30% more than counterparts with less diversity. The authors of the study and quantitative portfolio managers also claimed investors were yet to price in this information. The firm tracked 2,500 large-cap companies across 30 countries between January 1st, 2009 to December 31st last year, monitoring female proportional representation of board and senior management levels. The study also analysed the impact of disclosure, quotas, and an unstructured approach to increasing gender diversity, and found quotas were the most effective at promoting women to board positions and in turn driving performance. And the highly anticipated public float of Foxtel has been delayed until later this year due to a range of domestic and international factors that have altered the media landscape in recent months. Recent widespread industry speculation that an announcement regarding the timing of the float would be made by the end of this month, with a view to a possible public listing of the company before the end of this financial year, the potential deal now won't proceed until the second half of 2022. Rising worldwide inflation, forecasts of multiple interest rate rises this year, and the ongoing war in Ukraine have all played a part in stalling the IPO. There are also concerns that the streaming market, both in Australia and overseas, has become worryingly overcrowded in recent months, which could make investors skittish. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Victoria Matteson, the founder of Australian sustainable fashion and beauty marketplace, Victory Max, which has just launched their virtual fitting room in conjunction with technology company Reactive Reality. This free feature enables the customers to create a virtual mannequin in their proportions in order to mix and match pieces to find an outfit that they love. And I'll be talking to indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 